This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get into what is happening overseas. It obviously is among the most read stories, capturing a lot of attention, moving markets, and it's those airstrikes against Iran, the response, both political and military. Nick Wadhams joins the State Department reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Washington. He has been tracking this minute to minute. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So give us the latest here. We have a pretty good sense of what's happened over the last 24 hours. What's happening now and where do we go? Uh, Well, what you're seeing now is the administration really now focusing on the messaging that follows what was an extremely uh, bold and really unprecedented uh, strike an attack on a on a one of Iran's most prominent figures. One one official told me it was equivalent to killing the, a, a guy who was a com- combination of CIA director and defense uh, secretary rolled into one. So, uh, and then uh, to top it all off, it happened on Iraqi soil. Um, the U.S. is saying that this was a defensive action, and they're really trying to put the emphasis on the fact that they believe that by killing Qasem Soleimani, uh, they were saving American lives, potentially hundreds of American lives uh, were at risk. They're not telling us the details of that intelligence, but they are saying that there was an imminent threat uh, to Americans in the region um, and that that's why the strike was taken. So really trying to get away from the idea that this was an escalatory act on, on the part of the president. Nick, I've read at least three articles today, and, uh, you know, I'm in San Francisco, and so we're all keeping our eyes on on technology. But I do hear from at least multiple articles that the way that Iran now retaliates is via a cyber attack. Are you hearing as well that if they do a measured response, would it be via cyber warfare? Uh, that's certainly one of the what's seen as being the most viable options. I mean, what's what's clear here is that uh, if Iran chooses to respond, which the general consensus is that they will have to, um, the question is how. And and the word that keeps coming up is asymmetry. So they obviously don't have the military might to uh, take on the United States military head to head, but they can do other things. They can. Um, attack American forces and officials who are in the region. They can attack American allies. They can attack uh, oil infrastructure at, in countries like Saudi Arabia, as they've done before. And they also have a very advanced uh, cyber warfare program. So that could be another way to do it. Uh, it's unlikely we would see the same sort of toe-to-toe um, military action that the United States waged because they just don't really have that uh, refined capability to do that. So what we're looking for is in the days or months ahead, uh, some sort of asymmetrical response. And, and indeed, one, one of the ideas is that that would likely take the, the shape of a cyber attack because that's one way they could be most disruptive. And so, Nick, and you alluded to this a, a bit a few minutes ago, but, you know, sort of the messaging around this, some sharp words from the other side of the aisle, the Democratic side of the aisle when it comes to Congress. What might we see upcoming in terms of the discussions in Washington about, you know, 
how the other branches of government and specifically the legislative branch need to get involved or should be involved going forward? Well, it really plays into this broader discussion or debate that's been going on for, for years about, you know, the quote-unquote imperial presidency, the idea that the president himself just has an enormous amount of power uh, to launch a military strike uh, essentially at a time and place of his choosing, and uh, regardless of whether it touches off a potential conflict or war, it doesn't have to consult uh, Congress, even though it is um, Congress's right to, to be the one that declares war. So I think what you're going to see in the next couple days is a real effort by this administration uh, to present what it found or what it concluded was the uh, intelligence that led it to act um, to persuade Congress that um, it did so in a way that was justified and urgent and had to be done now and that that there was no time uh, to go through other processes. Though, of course, um, this administration, like others, has has shown that it's not um, particularly wedded to doing things uh, in, in how in a way that we would define as being sort of according to proper procedure. So um, certainly a lot of uh, demands from from Democrats in Congress that uh, they be keyed in on, on what that intelligence was. And then I think as that happens, we should start to see better and have a better sense of what exactly it was that made the president feel this was such an urgent mm-hmm. uh, need. And Nick, what are you hearing about how else uh, U.S. officials, the Trump administration, is preparing for any sort of retaliation that you said is the consensus from Iran? Well, the big thing is that the U.S. is is bolstering uh, its military presence in the Middle East now. Uh, They plan to send about uh, 3,000 more troops from the 82nd Airborne uh, into Kuwait. Um, They had already uh, deployed about 700 troops to Kuwait earlier this week. Um, after the uh, after an attack on the, the U.S. embassy there, um, so what you, what you're seeing here really is putting those forces in the region. Uh, the administration says this is to protect Americans; uh, that they will be taking a defensive posture. Again, they insist this is not meant to be an escalatory action, um, but there is really no one else uh, who sees it that way. Right. But, um, clearly, there's a feeling, even among American allies, that this was a, a vastly escalatory action. All right, Nick Wadhams, thank you so much. Part of a global team that is keeping a close eye on this story, the implications, as we say, both military, politically, and financially, and economically, as this plays out in the coming days and weeks. We really appreciate your time, Nick. Our State Department reporter joining us from Washington, D.C. So drug pricing continues to be one of the hottest issues when it comes to consumers, when it comes to the markets, and when it comes to politics as well. Uh, Michael Ray joins us. He is founder and chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions, joining us on the phone from Overland Park, Kansas. Michael, nice to have you with us. Likewise. Good to be here. All right. So give us a sense of where we are when it comes to drug pricing. It's the beginning of the year. And the beginning of the year, I have to think, given that it's an election year, presidential election year, we're going to be hearing a lot about drug pricing in that realm. It's also something that affects just about all of us. So where are we? Uh, Yeah. So I think, you know, when we look back in the last decade, this has been a a consistent uh, theme and issue. Uh, really highlighted when when Trump won uh, back in the end of 16 and into 17, where you know you had pharma companies coming and and taking social pledges to uh, kind of do things a bit differently. In the subsequent years since, we haven't really seen uh, too much different. There have been some kind of tamped down 
uh, percentage prices, but the number of increases is actually outpacing uh, this year. When you look at 2020, first three days in uh, versus 2019 by over 50%. Michael, can you... So 50% more drug price increases. Yeah. Tell us why. I understand the need to raise drug prices, to invest in R&D, find new cures. These drug trials are expensive. But why are we seeing what sounds like more drug pricing? It's higher than inflation, higher than last year. What's the balance? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that's the that's the you know trillion dollar question uh, that everyone's trying to answer. You know, there is um, when you, when drug prices are expected in the market for public markets profitability, uh, certainly that's one driver. Um, you know, less profitability uh, doesn't mean less money for R and D, or does it mean maybe less profits in the short term, but more in the long term, and what's really good for um, the pharma the pharma company long term. That, that's a question I think we're, we're very short-sighted um, with what's going to happen next quarter, next year, and we're not looking uh, five to ten years out in a lot of cases with, and, with, the, with the pharma company operation. Right. And have you seen sort of behavior markedly change in terms of economic financial decisions being made on the front lines by these companies in response to a lot more public and political pressure? Well, I think what we've seen um, from the large cap pharma companies is, uh, you know, kind of consistently below 10% price increases. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're still quite a bit higher than inflation. And when you think about the compound effect of a nine, 9.9% increase um, over three years, you know, compounded, that's much bigger than 30%. So you're still seeing, um, you know, these high dollar uh, products come to market with compounded uh, rates uh, of increase in pricing. Um, and, and that ultimately just continues to strain uh, the economy um, as a whole, health plans, employers, and, and consumers, certainly, uh, who are the ones that are carrying that burden. Michael, I'm based out here in San Francisco, and in about a week or two, we will be heading over to the Weston St. Francis, where we're going to be at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. We have interviews with all of these big tech companies, Pfizer, you name it, some of these big healthcare companies. What is the number one question, the number one theme we should be asking big drug companies when we're at that J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference? Well, I think that it's, you know, it's a drug pricing is very complex. I mean, there, there's obviously the pharma company where things start, and there's a lot of uh, intermediaries that go between uh, production of a pharmaceutical and, and the end consumer um, who's, who's ends up taking it. So, you know, the big question is, what is driving drug price increases? Is it, you know, the, the need to try to uh, appease the public market from a profitability standpoint? Is it more money for R&D? Is it for other people in the supply chain? Um, th- those are all the questions that really need to be answered. And I think um, from a pharma perspective, they'll certainly have opinions on, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, is it, is it um, you know, what is the driver? Why would they take these increases consistently um, if they claim that there's no actual, you know, net profitability by doing so, um, then what would be the reason to, to keep doing it? We're going to leave it there. Michael Ree is founder and chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions. He joins us on the phone from Overland Park, Kansas.
Well, it's a more connected world for sure. We're more connected to our cars, but maybe less connected to each other by virtue of everything that's around us. Let's get into that and much more with the chief futurist over at Ford. That's Cheryl Connolly. She joins us on the phone from Dearborn, Michigan. Cheryl, Happy New Year. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Happy New Year to you, too. All right. So first of all, Taylor and I have been talking about this off air. You have a really cool job, right? I mean, that's fair to say. I do have a really, really great job. I'm the chief futurist for Ford. I've done futuring work for the company hmm, for 16 years, and I've been with Ford for 24 years. So it's a really, really great uh, gig, and it always surprises people when I tell them that my job is to look outside of the auto industry. So right. look at anything pertain specifically to automotive. All right. So you have recently put some thoughts out there. What was the thing that most intrigues you as you look ahead, especially as we think about 2020, which feels like kind of a key year when it comes to our relationship with our cars? It is. It is a really big year. I mean, we're starting a new decade. And it's interesting because it causes me to reflect on the last decade. So I, I mentioned already, I've done this work for 16 years. And we used to never talk about it publicly. Uh, it was considered top secret, yeah. proprietary stuff. But eight years ago, we decided to start publishing some of our thoughts. And the more we shared, the richer our insights became. So it's really great to have conversations like this with you and Taylor. But what I've seen over the last eight years is this con- constant theme surrounding trust. I mean, mistrust in business, government, media has never been higher. But what we see for 2020 is that the mistrust is starting to spill into our relationships. More specifically, loneliness. Loneliness is a global epidemic. And loneliness, you know, we all think about loneliness kind of as a temporary state. But doctors actually say that loneliness doesn't just make you feel bad. It's bad for you. One Surgeon General said that it is the equivalent of being obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Wow, that is quite um, a statistic. You know, another thing in your report, Cheryl, that really stood out to me is that 58% of adults say they feel like they want to fight climate change, yet less than half are actually taking action. We think green transportation methods like electric cars or public transportation. Where are we in, you know, at least starting to get more on board with some of the EV Uh, driving methods. So what you're talking about is a trend that we call the green paradox. You know, everyone says that they're actively changing or fighting climate change in big ways and small. But what we see is that most Americans are only willing to, well, I should say both, it's 48% of Americans that we surveyed are only willing to embrace sustainable initiatives if the inconvenience is small or non-existent. So how do we close the gap between intention and action? And some of it is that people just don't want to make trade-offs. They want things to be simplified and easy. And EVs is tricky because, while 56% of the people we spoke to said more people should drive EVs, only 17 of the respondents actually do. So that percentages remain really low. And we know that people don't fully understand the benefits. All they think about is this trade-off or compromise. So it's exciting because Ford will introduce this year for the very first time in all-electric new Ford Mustang Mach-E sport utility vehicle. Now, most people recognize Mustang as a performance vehicle, like a pony car, um, pedal to the metal, wind at your hair, convertible. So to think about that brand legacy applied to a sport utility vehicle that happens to be an EV totally changes your notion of what you get. 
in other words, for our customers, it means you can have mileage and muscle. You don't have to compromise. Right. Well, and it's, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I have this sense from reading your report, you sort of validate some things that I think we suspect, which is people sort of say one thing and do another, right? You know, they expect so much of a brand, and yet if it's the affordable choice or it's the convenient choice, maybe they're going to go ahead and do that. Am I, mis- am I misreading that? Am I too cynical about that? I, I'm sad to say that I share in your cynicism. I mean, you know, some of it is is that Climate change in general is difficult because it doesn't evoke the fight or flight right. instinct. It's abstract. It feels distant. So we don't always take it as urgently as we should. But I had an experience this summer where I traveled to South Africa. And the public restrooms of a number of the restaurants and meeting places I went to had shut off their faucet and asked people to use hand sanitizer instead. And it was just a, this reality about, like, we talk about climate change as this distant thing, um, irregular weather patterns. But in a place like South Africa, they see it as a meaningful threat, an eminent threat to their food and water supply. Cheryl, I, I want to get some of your thoughts because you mentioned, you know, Ford's specifics push into the electric vehicle market to help combat some of the climate issues that you just addressed. You know, the Mustang, we're even hearing the F-150 trying to revamp its EV lineup as well. How do you view Ford in the midst of the EV push? You know, we got numbers out of Tesla this morning. They just continue to dominate the EV space. Where do you see Ford sort of all in the EV picture as as playing a role? So we actually are really excited about our investment in this space. I mean, Ford has um, a long legacy of playing in the sustainability space, and that has everything to do with Bill Ford, who is the great-grandson of Henry Ford and still actively involved with the company as the executive chair of our board. And he has said, I have two passions in my life. They're automobiles and their environment. And he has spent his 40-year career trying to reconcile the conflict between the two. And so he was pushing us to start, you know, he was actually pushed for the EV program long before you could actually make a solid business case for it. Because what you said, you know, is that not everyone wants to pay for it. There are those, those people who see themselves as being like a deep green consumer. And then there are those who are um, less likely to jump on the bandwagon. But we have invested extraordinarily into our um, EV program. We plan to develop new electric vehicles, um, and we're working with partners, new partners on this, like Rivian, um, to create new EVs. And Rivian is actually, we've made a $500 million investment with Rivian, and Rivian is partnered with Amazon to help um, deliver packages in the future. So we think that there's really big opportunity here. Right. All right. Thank you so much. Cheryl Connolly, Chief Futurist over at Ford. She joins us on the phone from Dearborn, Michigan. All right. Well, here in New York City, we care about a relatively small number of things. Real estate is a very important one of them. Let's be honest. Oshrat Carmiel is real estate reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from right here in New York City. Oshrat, Happy New Year. Great to have you with us. Happy New Year. All right. So what happened with Manhattan home sales? This has been 
quite something to watch over the past few years because after that sky's the limit mentality for so long, it hasn't been quite that way. No, it hasn't. And I guess the top line number is Manhattan sales fell again. And, you know, they've been falling for almost every quarter for the last two years, except for one. Um, and so they fell, but they fell by the smallest amount, you know, and so it, it feels like the new reality it takes usually 18 months to take. And, and it, it suggests that finally sellers are kind of realizing that they can't just name any price and expect to have people outbid them, um, that you may have to actually lower your price. And so it just reflects that deals are getting done, um, but the market is still slow. Yeah. And what I liked about that is that if you're a seller and you're willing to acknowledge you have to come down a little bit in price, you're actually making buyers a little bit more encouraged and then they are coming to the table, right? They, they are, and and I think the tale of the, the tale for the last two years is that sales have been falling. They were falling like 10, 11, 12 percent, very significant numbers, and that's because the buyers were just staying away. They weren't even bothering to bid. They just assumed that you know this is overpriced. Uh, sellers would just you know laugh them off, and so they just didn't transact. And so the market's still weak. Seller uh, buyers are still very wary of overpaying. They're incredibly wary of overpaying. But the fact that the sales drop is so low suggests that um, there's a meeting of the minds. Uh, it's not that wide anymore. And so, Oshrat, when, when you look at the numbers sort of a level down, what is selling better? You know, give us some price ranges for what seems to be moving uh, better than others. Well, I guess New York price ranges are relative to the rest yes. of the country, but in New York, um, it's the under three million market, which actually New York is kind of workforce housing. Um, but under three million is where most of the sales were, about 88% of the sales, um, which sounds great, except for New York has a very, very large glut of um, luxury properties. That was really where all the construction was um, in the last five years and, and still happening. So there's a, there's a real oversupply of, of, of properties above five million. Um, not all, uh, majority of the sales were not happening there, um, but uh, but yeah, under three million is probably where things were more brisk. Um, so, Oshra, you know, some of the headwinds that we have discussed over the past couple of years are foreign buyers not showing up in the way that they did before. Some of the tax changes that were predicted to have an impact and seemingly did. And then, as you said, sort of this overbuilding that we saw on the luxury end, especially on the first two, the foreign buyers uh, and the tax changes, have those sort of ameliorated or have they just worked their way through the system? Where do we stand on, on those factors? Oh, those are still very much weighing on, on the market. So foreign buyers, um, they were they were a very big source of buyers for, for some of this really lu this luxury product. People would come in, pay cash. For a long time. A I mean, for times. a decade plus, right? Yeah. And so, and, and some might still be there, but there's really no urgency. There's so much to buy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some, some of it, I mean, you have capital controls in some countries, so that's making it harder to buy. Um, so for the most part, they, they're gone. Um, and then people who are left who might be buying this, even as a pied-à-terre, you know, domestic buyers or pied-à-terres or people who might want to live there, you got, I mean, you got thousands and thousands of units to choose from. You are in no rush. You're going to be, you know, you, you want to, you want to bargain and, and obviously making a bargain when you're dealing, when you're making a 
deal when you're talking about a, a property that's $10 million, $12 million, $13 million. That, that might take longer than maybe if you're buying a $2 million property. Um, so, so it's a very slow-moving market. That's a very big factor. Tax law is a factor um, both on the federal and on the state level. Right. Um, on July 1st, um, New York State raised the co- closing costs. Um, so basically, if you're buying, and they made them the closing costs more progressive. So essentially, the, the starting at two million dollars, um, you're paying a higher um, share of the closing cost. In, in yeah, the mansion tax levies now a higher uh, rate based on how expensive your property is. Then there's the transfer tax that also is higher. So the more expensive your property is, the higher your closing costs are. Right. Um, and then there's still talk right now in Albany when when the legislature reconvenes of imposing a pied terre tax, which would be an annual tax on uh, second home properties, $5 million and more. So there's there's probably some fear of that happening. Um, so there's still a lot, of, a lot of impact on the market. Right. All right. A great summary. Thank you so much for your reporting. Keenly watched, for sure. Oshrek Carmiel is real estate reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from New York City, talking Manhattan real estate. I'm driving my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. One of our faves back with us, David Dietz, president and chief investment strategist for Point U Wealth Management, looking after about $6.6 billion. He joins us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Happy New Year, Mr. Dietz. Same to you, Jason. All right. Well, nice to catch up with you. You know, it's funny. I don't know if it's funny. It's interesting, maybe, that we have talked for so long, you and I and you and others and me and others, about this notion of, well, there's some geopolitical risk out there. Looks like we've got some geopolitical risk at this point. How does this play through the markets in your estimation? Well, certainly it's a wake-up call for our, all market participants to not be complacent. We have saw one of the best markets since 2013 last year. There may have been a hint of complacency in the markets, but following the uh, taking out of an Iranian general last night um, and what the implications that, would, that could ultimately have to the energy markets and peace in the world, um, markets reacted strongly, and I think people realized that if they were too far out on their skis, if they hadn't taken into consideration what could happen, uh, they were under tremendous pressure today. And David, as you take a look at the moves today, particularly the socks here down 1.6%, is this a buying opportunity? Is this finally a little bit of a pullback given everyone consensus is stocks post another decent year in 2020? So it could be a buying opportunity. It really depends where your portfolio is. I'm afraid that an awful lot of people are coming into this year very overweight stocks and underweight safer havens. And for them, it's probably not a buying opportunity because to the extent that um, the risk that they're taking is inconsistent with the type of shocks that periodically markets experience like today, um, it's a chance to perhaps to rethink where you are and take some chips off the table from the risk assets. On the other hand, if you've been sitting in cash or have been too conservative, this is probably an opportunity to take advantage 
of pullbacks in stocks because I think that this is not derailing some very solid fundamentals as we come into 2020. And so talk to us about those fundamentals, because obviously earnings is at the core of all of this. And you've you've mentioned that. But what do we expect, especially as we're getting into earnings season in just a few in a matter of weeks and maybe even days? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the backdrop, of course, is a very dovish Fed and, of course, some positive what we believe to be resolutions to a number of trade disputes worldwide. Um, You know, what we have, though, with the higher valuations, which I guess can be justified because of the lower interest rates, um, what we need here is strong corporate earnings to take the market to the next level. Mm -hmm. Um, This past year, earnings were close to flat. However, analysts looking forward, see earnings up perhaps 10%. So if valuations, meaning multiples of those earnings stay constant, earnings increase 10%, the market go up 10%. Having said that, we're more conservative than that. We see earnings actually coming down as the year progresses, as people get more realistic. So we're advising our investors, gee, maybe 6 to 8% earnings growth, which might give you a market uh, at the end of the year up about 6 to 8%. And so, David, we love talking names with you. And I want to bring in one name that Taylor and I were talking about just a few minutes ago, which is Wells Fargo. I ask you about it every time. And (laughs) and the context I want to ask it in today is you've got a record number of or a a high number, uh, the highest in, in quite some time of sell ratings for Wells Fargo. Maybe not the enthusiasm that Charlie Scharf is looking for. What's your case for Wells Fargo? at this moment? Well, um, so we actually are bullish on Wells Fargo, and it's one of our top 10 stocks for 2020. I'll put that out there. Now, why are we bullish? First of all, it's one of the best franchises uh, in the country, coast to coast, which gives them the most efficiencies for advertising and marketing and so forth. Um, Second, they have traditionally been conservative underwriters of debt. And so therefore, to the extent that we're getting near the end of the economic cycle and you need to pay attention to credit quality, they're right there with you. Um, They also have a low exposure to investment banking and bond trading activities, which have often gotten other financial institutions uh, crosswise when things got volatile. And so, you know, uh, you've also got a decent dividend of about 4%. What is the key issue? The key issue now is they've got a new leader who, from the Bank of New York, but not quite as proven as some of the uh, legacy leaders. Um, And second, of course, you still have the Federal Reserve, which has ring-fenced the growth of Wells Fargo until they show some change in cultures. But that ultimately, Jason, could be one of the catalysts for a better Wells Fargo if the Federal Reserve lifts that. Right. Finally, I think interest rates could be moving higher. That means net interest spreads expand, and that's manna from heaven for financials. David, another stock that caught my eye is Pfizer. I'm heading over to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in a few weeks right over here at the uh, uh, St. Francis in San Francisco. What do you like about Pfizer given they've had what's been relatively anemic uh, recent sales growth? Well, so, Taylor, there's, there's, there's a number of problems for the whole healthcare sector. You know, right at the top, of course, is the political scene where politicians on both sides of the aisle are very concerned about the rapid rise in healthcare costs. But nevertheless, when the time gets tough, go with the biggest player. And I think um, Pfizer has two key advantages that um, puts them, has to put them in your portfolio. One, of course, is they 
spend more than anyone else on research and development. And it's the type of business where the more shots on goal, the more you're doing, the more likely you're going to find that blackbuster drug for, for cancer or whatever. Second, you know, they have the largest sales force, not just in this country, but worldwide. And of course, a lot of the increase in spending is going to come from outside this country, which want to enjoy some of the, the, the great health care that we have in this country, albeit not inexpensive. Um, so I think they are very well positioned. Of course, while you're waiting for things to get better, for new discoveries to um, be out there, you have a dividend that's approaching 4%. It is the so-called dog of the Dow this year, one of the top 10 yielders. So I think you are well paid to wait and be patient here. All right. David Dietz, always good to catch up with you, President and Chief Investment Strategist for Point View Wealth Management. Looking after about $6.6 billion there in Summit, New Jersey. That's where he joined us. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.